Hi, you're listening to the RVC Podcast, a ministry of River Valley Church in Fresno, California. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. We are heading into what's going to be a beautiful weather pattern here in the Fresno area. So you'll be happy you live in the valley. I understand it's going to be like 85 all summer long. So it's already beginning. Uh, hey, as we, as we mentioned on the, on the uh, announcement video, you know, in your bulletin, we always have a connection card, always has prayer requests on there. But we've been doing some events. Uh, this will be our second prayer event for the year. And this is an opportunity for you to put down a prayer request. There is a person in your life that you want to see come to know Jesus Christ. There might be a really uh, big situation that your family is facing. Uh, it could be a relationship that you want to see restored. Uh, what happens on that prayer night, and by the way, it's not just to fill this out, and you can fill out multiple ones, by the way, uh, and let us know how we can be praying, but I want to invite you to be a part of that night. If you've never been a part of a, a prayer meeting, uh, this is, it's kind of freaky, I'm not going to lie. First time I, ours isn't, but first time I went to a, uh, yeah, it's, first you got to like write a poem and read it to everybody about prayer. No, it's, uh, I remember my first prayer meeting as a new Christian. It was, it was a little bit freaky. I didn't know, what am I going to say? Am I going to mess up? You know, and that sort of thing. This night is just, it's perfect for someone who has never been a part of a prayer meeting before. We place these cards all over the Campus Life Center, and we just turn on some worship music after we sing a couple songs, and we just walk around, and we find a card, we sit down at that spot, and we just begin to pray over that person. The great thing that's been happening is that we're starting to see uh, from just people sharing what's going on, God has been moving in answer to prayer. Uh, the book of James says, you have not because you ask not. Um, we, there's so much that God wants to do in our lives, and he does it in answer to prayer. And so I want to foster an attitude of prayer at RBC like we've never had before, and to, and to as a step of faith, say, God, I really want to see you move in this particular area, and write that down. If it's a sensitive need, you can just put down the general need without even putting your name. So someone will be praying faithfully that hour, and uh, it's been awesome to see how God has been moving uh, in life. So this morning, we are back in our brand new series called Citizens of the Kingdom. We're talking about what it means to live as a citizen in God's kingdom. Uh, today is part two of being a happy citizen. Uh, everybody in our world is seeking happiness in some way, shape, or form, right? Uh, certainly, our world has all kinds of opportunities that say, this is going to make you happy. The culture of our world uh, and what we find, it's like going to Universal Studios. You see all these big, beautiful houses that you've seen on television and movies, and then you go behind the scenes, and you see it's a facade. It's emptiness, and that's what happens in life. We chase after something outside of a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. Happiness is something that God describes in the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of this Sermon on the Mount that we're studying. And yet it comes in a very counterculture kind of way, uh, that we see in our world. It's Matthew chapter 5 where we're going to be this morning. We'll read verse 1 through 12 again as we did last week. It was Jim Carrey who was the Academy Award winning actor. Uh, he's never won an Academy Award, just in case you're wondering. He said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed so that they will know that it's not the answer. Uh, I think a lot of people in our world who have found success at some level have realized that Man, that still isn't satisfying in my life. That satisfaction, that deep 
inner need that we all have, it comes through a connected relationship with Jesus Christ. Living the life that he's called us to live, that's where we find that satisfaction. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount really talks about that. Life in God's kingdom. Uh, a picture of what life is like in God's kingdom. Uh, last week, I, I shared this with us in our, in our time of teaching. It, it, the Sermon on the Mount really is how to live as a disciple if you and I regard Jesus as our king. So it's verse one, it's chapter five of Matthew's gospel. And we'll pick it up again all the way to verse 12 together. Jesus, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he shifts gears and he says, Blessed are you when others revile you or mock you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus began this sermon. It's the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And he went up on the mountainside. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And his disciples gathered, yet there's a crowd that was around listening in, uh, eavesdropping on what does it mean to be a part of this upside-down counterculture kingdom that Jesus is the king of. When, when he began speaking, you know, there's a lot of confusion about the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of people think it's like another law. Like, oh, if you do these things, then you can be a Christian. You will actually uh, ensure that you are a saved man or woman. No one is saved by keeping the law. No one is saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. If somebody ever asks you, like, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Why keep the Ten Commandments? Like, well, you're a liar, and so you've already broken one, and you've broken all ten, if not by the letter, at least by the intent of the law. Some people say, oh, I tried to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? It's daunting. The things that we're reading about, the characteristic traits that ought to be in a disciple of Jesus, we get to that spot in our life when we read through the Sermon on the Mount and say, God, help me, because I cannot do these things. I cannot manufacture these characteristics that are a part of your kingdom. So we're not saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mount. We're saved by grace, amen? Not by our works. There's nothing you and I can do to ever earn God's favor or righteousness. It is a free gift that he gives to those who call upon him in truth. But what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is it's a life that Jesus lived. And we are his disciples. A disciple means learner. It also is this mentality of we're an apprentice, if you would, of Jesus. And as we study the Sermon on the Mount, as we walk with Jesus, as we allow his spirit to work in our lives, we find that we begin to start to mirror these characteristics that are a part of his kingdom. We discover, by the way, it's not possible to see these 
become a reality in our lives without the operation of God's Spirit in our lives. And so we say, God, I need you to come and live this life that I can't live in me and through me. That quote I shared last week that hit some of you hard, the essence of the Christian life is to behave contrary to human nature. You think of all the things that Jesus asks of us in the Sermon on the Mount, it's so contrary to our human nature, even just looking at these Beatitudes. And so last week we began the first section of the Beatitudes, that idea of when Jesus says blessed, there's a, a, the word that we get the Beatitude phrase from, the Latin word is beatus. It means to have divine joy or perfect happiness. And in other words, Jesus is saying there's a happiness that you can get from the world, but it doesn't last. But there's a divine joy, a perfect happiness that comes to the person who begins to allow these traits to be uh, uh, emerging in their life. There are eight beatitudes and they're unexpected situations in which a person finds God's favor or blessing or happiness. The first four we looked at last week, if you weren't with us, you can jump on our website, you can download the message and have a go at it. But really the first half that we read about, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, that actually has to do with how we relate to God, how we interact with God, right? Happy are the spiritually poor. Happy are those who mourn. And what they find is that the result is humility. And we're emptied of ourselves and we begin to hunger and thirst for God. And then in verse 7, there's kind of a turning point, which we'll be looking at this morning. The Beatitudes, by the way, are not like haphazardly given. It's not like Jesus is there with a daisy in his hair, you know what I mean? And flowing blonde locks and a lamb around his neck, you know what I mean? Like at Coachella or something like that. And he's just like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, ooh, that's so deep. There's a systematic approach to what Jesus says in these Beatitudes. Someone's likened it to like climbing up the side of a mountain. And the peak is the fourth Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the other parts are the result of being satisfied, being filled with God and his righteousness. The last four that we'll look at this morning, beginning with verse 7, is what it means to be filled. And so we say, Jesus said, this fifth beatitude, happy are the merciful. That's a searching one, isn't it? Is now we're dealing with how we relate to humanity around us. The first four about God, now it's about people. Blessed are the merciful. This one, it tests our lives. We ask the question, in fact, I would encourage you to ask yourself this morning, am I merciful? Am I a merciful person? We have become the recipients of God's grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting something you deserve. Aren't you grateful for mercy this morning? Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. God cancels all of our debt of sin. That's mercy. But then he gives us grace upon grace and he fills our lives with a righteousness that we can never earn or deserve and a rich life and knowing him, not just having our debt of sin canceled out. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, he's not saying be merciful so that God will show you mercy. It's you've received mercy, so it, now it should show up in your life and how you treat other people. 
We've seen that we're who we are already before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means that you are bankrupt spiritually. You have nothing to offer God that he should choose you. He just does because he loves you. And the, and the first group that gets in the kingdom aren't the religious leaders or the Pharisees or the scribes or, or the, the religious zealots of the day. It was the, it was the, the, the losers. It was the, the, the tax collector that was despised. It was the prostitute that Jesus ministered to. Those are the ones that get in the kingdom because they recognize you have nothing to offer. That's the first step in, in, in coming to a place where you become a, a, a child of God is you recognize there's nothing you can do to earn your way to God's kingdom in his presence. So we know we're poor in spirit. We need God's mercy. We mourn over our sinful condition. It humbles us. We begin to seek God and hunger after God and a righteousness that he can give us because we have no righteousness in ourselves. And then we should have no more pride. So why not be merciful to people that are around us? Why not allow that characteristic trait of a citizen of God's kingdom to be something that is felt by people in your life and in my life. Something I read this week about this particular beatitude is only a person with a right view of self can see others as God sees them with mercy. When you see yourself exactly who you are, a beggar who has found bread, how would we ever cast judgment or be critical of another human being and not extend mercy towards them? The Pharisees didn't get there. They were still stuck on their pride. In fact, it was a group of Pharisees that had Jesus over for a meal and a woman who was, you know, uh, not a church girl shows up at the house and, uh, and, and she begins to weep over the grace and mercy that she felt from Jesus. She knew something was different about Jesus. He was more than a rabbi, more than a teacher. He was the, the son of God. And she began to weep and the way they would eat in those days is that, you know, their, their feet would extend out from this little, like, low table or gathering area. And she began to just weep over his feet, and she began to dry his, his feet with her, with her hair, you know, her hair being her glory. It's just a, the humiliating thing that she did. And, and the Pharisees start, like, talking amongst themselves, like, dude, if he knew, if he was holy, he'd know what kind of girl this is. You know what I mean? So they just, like, downgraded Jesus in their mind. And then he tells a story about, you know, someone who's been forgiven much, loves much. And he began to talk about this woman saying, her sins are many, I'll give you that. But she's been forgiven many. She recognizes what God has offered her. And man, she displayed love. That's mercy. That's what it means to be blessed are the merciful. It's more than a feeling, by the way. Does anyone ever have that Boston song going off their head right now when I said more than a feeling? And I was about to go up high, but I can't. Something's wrong with my voice today, so I'll spare you. It's more than a feeling. We should have Jesse over here on your guitar playing just a little solo. It's pity with a desire to relieve. Think about that. Am I merciful? Do you have pity towards another human being in this world and it moves you to relieve their condition. That's what mercy is. The good Samaritan was merciful. 
He was a man, Jesus told about this story of a man who was beaten and left half dead and naked. And a, and a rabbi goes by and a, a Pharisee goes by. And, and then this Samaritan who, who really had every good reason to walk on the other side as well because he and this man that was beaten up were arch rivals. They, they did not get along. And, and, and so he goes to this man because he's moved with pity and compassion and he cleans him up. He takes him to this, you know, hotel. He, he, he gets a, you know, medical treatment for this guy. And then he leaves and tells the innkeeper, hey, uh, I'm going to leave him here. Here's some money to take care of his needs. And next time I'm in town, if it exceeds that money, then I'll pay for the rest of it. That's merciful, right? Mercy, it looks at the miserable consequences of sin and it pities that person and desires to relieve it. We're sorry for that victim of sin, circumstances, and just life, and it goes and does something. It helps a person in need. We would say a merciful person, it sees those who are weak and poor in this world, and they relieve them. It would see the broken person and relieve them. Mercy forgives people who wrong us. Holding on to a grudge as a Christian is one of the most destructive things that you could ever do to your spiritual life because you get stuck right there that becomes your sticking point of your spiritual growth you say god i want to move and i want to grow closer to you i want to know you i want you to use my life and you've got a grudge or you've got unforgiveness in your heart man that's where you're part and you will stay and the the lord is a patient parent i was not a patient parent if you don't eat all your vegetables, you can't play video games. Why ruin my night? For the sake of just disciplining the kids so he becomes a great citizen of our community. Like, I'm selfish. Like, just scoot it off your plate. Go. Be gone. Tammy say, come back here, young man. I'm like, okay, fine. Go ahead, ruin our night. God will just say, man, we can, I can hang out. You want to hang out here all day? We could hang out here all day because I cannot move forward with you until you become merciful. And that becomes your sticking point. You forgive those who wrong you and you seek to restore relationships. You see, I think sometimes that we, we understand forgiveness, we grant. The Christian works towards reconciliation. And that's where the heavy lifting comes in. We're compassionate to those whose lives are caught up in sin. Do you, do you all have like a group of, like a, a classification of different sins that you're okay with and you're comfortable with? But then there's like another, another version of sin. You're just like, oh, I don't get that, man. That's jacked up. All of our sin, by the way, deserves God's wrath, holy judgment. All of it deserves death, hell for eternity, an eternal judgment. Whether it's a Republican kind of sin, a Democratic kind of sin, a 420 kind of sin, whatever kind of sin goes on in our world, you say, I found bread. I want to be merciful and see their condition. We don't celebrate their condition, but we have mercy towards them. A merciful person cares for the souls of humanity. Jesus was so serious about this when he talks about, uh, it was uh, Peter who said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who wrongs me? Seven times? And it was like, dang, Pete, that's, I'm proud of you. You're coming a long way. And Jesus said, no, Peter, I tell you, seven times, 70 times. 
Peter was horrible at math, and Jesus knew that, and he'd never be able to count that high. It's like, it's an, like a, an unfathomable amount of times you'd forgive someone in a day, right? And then he tells a story about a man who had a debt that he owed to a lender, and the debt equivalent is $12 million to about a billion dollars in today's economy. It says, come on in, you owe this debt. Oh, I can't pay, please be merciful. He's like, nope, lock him up. He starts whining, crying, and he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to cancel out your debt. Wouldn't that be awesome in a world like that? <laughs> to say like, oh, I'm so sorry, Citibank. I just, have mercy. Oh, it's all good, Gordon. It's not the way it works. Uh, nor uh, the IRS, by the way. Have you noticed that? They want their money. Uh, and then this guy goes and finds a guy that owes him about 100 days worth of wages. A billion, about 100 days worth of work. He grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me. And all the other servants saw this go on. And, and he, he says, be merciful. Same words, whining, crying, please be merciful. Locks him up. Servants go and tell the, the lender, the master, and says, dude, John is not a merciful person. And then Jesus makes this, this analogy, like, unless you show mercy, you will not receive mercy. Meaning, if you don't show mercy, you don't understand mercy. You don't understand what you've already received from God. You don't get grace already at that point. Do you know someone who won't let go of a grudge? They're bitter over being wronged. Would you describe them as having perfect happiness or divine joy? Miserable people. That's what happens to us. By the way, this is an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? Happy are those, we would say, who get someone back. And then you kind of like inside applaud them. Good for you. Way to do that. Way to let them know. Somebody said, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. As C.S. Lewis once said, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. If I'm not merciful, it means I don't get it, man. I don't understand it. But when I'm filled with God's love, I'm merciful. I'm not judgmental. I'm not critical. God is the ultimate merciful being, by the way, who saw our misery, our miserable state and our condition of being lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. And he was moved with pity and compassion and he left heaven and became a man living a life that none of us could live so that ultimately he could buy us back and redeem us and forgive our gazillion dollars of debt of sin that we owed to God. Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful. The next one, happy are the pure in heart. You know, the gospel is concerned about your heart. Some of you grew up in church. And in a lot of ways, our churches kind of can mirror like the Pharisees version of Christian or the, of religion, where it's lots of externals. And so you grow up going in church and, uh, and, and they tell you, hey, don't go to dances. It's sinful. Like, why does my body want to move then? You know, or hey, don't play any cards because it's sinful. Go fish, you'll go to hell, right? It's like, maybe you grew up in a church like that. Don't listen to secular music. You're like, but at my dance, I don't want to sing, you know, like a worship song. I'd, I'd kind of like to dance to Frank Sinatra. Is God okay with that? No, you sinner. You know, and so you, Christians just kind of built an external religion. Don't do this, don't do that. Oh, I'm a Christian. Christianity gets to the heart. Uh, the heart, in fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will, will, will uh, go back and forth of this is what you've heard it said, but let's get to the heart of the issue. 
Jesus is concerned with our hearts being changed. And the gospel is concerned about our heart. As somebody has rightly said, the heart of every problem is the problem with every heart. Think of every situation that's going on wrong in your life right now. A relationship that's, that's in a funk or a, a work scenario. You know, somebody gets all heated and upset because you felt like that you were, you know, moving in their territory at work or something like that. And you go, what's our big issue, man? It's because our hearts are filled with pride. Issues in your household. Issues between husbands and wives. It's that it, our hearts are stubborn. In fact, the indictment made by God about this is Jeremiah 17, 9 where God says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Someone at work says to you, hey, can I share my heart? Say, please don't. <laughs> Your heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> right? Deceitful of all, above all things. Who really knows how bad it is, God says. Well, God does, and that's why he came to, to give us a new heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15 that the disciples just went about like, here's my sandwich, I'm going to start eating my sandwich. The Pharisees said, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? This isn't like a concerned mom. Like, hey, you know, I saw your son pick his nose and then he ate his, I'm concerned about his hygiene, blah, blah, blah. It's not what's happening. They had like a ceremonial wash the way they would, like they're a heart surgeon or something like that. They would do this washing and everyone would deserve it and go like, wow, they're so holy. Look at the ceremony they're going through and washing their hands. That's what they were talking about. How come your disciples don't follow our rituals that show us that they're holy? And so Jesus told them the story and he said, the words that you speak come out from the heart that's what defiles you, for from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery. Think of every sin that you and I could ever commit or want to commit in this world. It all starts at that heart level. Is it, oh man, they, oh, I'm just going to get them back. And so we slander, or we lie, or we try to harm someone with our, ver our words because it starts there in the heart. That's a problem area. He says, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. When you use the restroom, though, guys, wash your hands. I see the non-washers here at RVC, and it's a little elbow bump. That's all you do. I'll let you know, okay? Next week, I'll point them all out. All of our troubles, by the way, begin at our heart level, don't they? The heart's the center of who we are. Like David, we pray, God created me a clean heart. Lord, we need a renewed heart. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he wasn't talking about a flawless heart. He wasn't talking about a sinless heart. That's impossible for you and I to have. It means this, without hypocrisy. Or another way, a way of saying it, is single-hearted devotion to Jesus. It's a word that he'll talk about in the next chapter of Matthew's gospel, having a single eye or an evil eye a good eye or an evil eye. It means that we're looking at two things at the same time. I really want to serve God, but I have a, I have a divided heart, if you would, is what Jesus is referring to here, saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. To have a pure heart, we pray like David, unite my heart to fear your name, Psalm 86 says. Another way of saying it is, grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. Our troubles all stem, by the way, from having that divided heart. One of our kids uh, got busted at, on a Wednesday night when I was a pastor down in Southern California. 
got in trouble. And of course, they come to the pastor's wife and tell her, like, oh, your child, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, uh, I'm still like hanging out at the youth group playing ping pong or something like that. What Tammy's disciplined all the kids. And then I come home and it's all fun and games. And, uh, and so she's like, you know, listen, I'm going to tell you how serious this is. And it's not good. You can't say that to the Sunday school teacher or Wednesday night Bible study leader. And so my kid begins to just describe what happened. It's like, it's like this. I really want to be good in my heart. But then my heart flips over and it bees naughty. <laughs> and I'm like, and a theologian was born. <laughs> Isn't that your problem? Isn't that my problem? Oh, Lord, I really want to serve you. God, I want to live for you. We worship on a Sunday morning, and we just begin to plan out our week. Oh, good intentions. But then our heart flips over. It's that our heart is divided. One part of me wants to serve God, wants to worship him wholeheartedly, and another part wants something else. I want to seek to live a wholehearted life for Jesus, practicing holiness, and pure in heart, where it's not divided anymore. We prayed this morning, God, make my heart one, Lord, so that it desires you and nothing else. The only way for you and I to have a pure heart is to mourn our divided hearts, our impure hearts. We ask the Holy Spirit to come in each one of these beatitudes and say, God, I need you to live that through me. God, I need you to do that in me. It's not a passive thing, by the way, that we just say, God, do that work in me. There's a lot of activity on our parts. Throughout the New Testament, we read, uh, those who name the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. We read in James chapter 4, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and cleanse your heart, you double-minded. If you're chasing after two things, God and something else that we'll talk about in Matthew's Gospel chapter 6 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, whether that's chasing after pleasure, chasing after money, chasing after success, you won't catch either. So, so God, unite my heart. Unite my heart. And he says, and you'll see God. Like other promises in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, they're partly fulfilled this side of heaven. To see God, one day we'll see him face to face. And John's got, John, 1 John, he, uh, John, the only John, 1 John uh, chapter 3, he talks about uh, this, this, this idea that one day we'll see God, it, it's motivation to live a pure life. One day I'm going to see God face to face. I want to live for him on this side of eternity. But to see God, it, it means the greater intimacy with him as our lives get free from the distractions and the pollutions of sin. Have you ever been in a groove of your life where you're just like, no, you stiff arm every temptation that's been coming your way. You're growing closer to him. You're, you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you have that sense like, man, I got like an inner joy right now that comes from knowing him. Nothing's changed in my life. My marriage is the same. My job's the same. My whatever's the same. My sickness is the same. But I'm still moving towards a greater uh, sense of joy in my life. What's going on, Lord? that heart's becoming united to serve him and to walk with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The next one he says is, happy are the peacemakers. This is a person who's a lover of peace. It's more than just making peace between people, although it includes that. It's someone who is peaceable. It's someone who is peaceful and gentle. As Jesus was the most approachable human in the world. You think about, read the Gospels. 
You see the people that shied away from the religious leaders, but they were there at a meal with Jesus. The Prince of Peace. Is that a description of your life? Is that a description of my life as a citizen of his kingdom? He says, happy are you when you allow that the peace of God to emerge from your life and you become a peacemaker in this world. One who diffuses strife. That would mean that you and I listen to other people. That would mean that you and I truly hear them. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's something we can't promote unless we have the peace of God. And it also would include proclaiming the gospel of peace to those around us. By the way, no one will ever... Peace treaties, right? Uh, you know, groups of people that have, you know, that have division and they just make a commitment. Now we're going we're gonna to honor each other. It's a heart issue, man. Something goes south and all of a sudden it's like all bets are off. You know what people really need in this world? Legislation will not change what people really need. They need a heart change. And the only way for a person to have a heart change is to actually meet the Prince of Peace. And so being a peacemaker would include going and proclaiming the gospel of peace, introducing people to the Prince of Peace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that you and I have been given a ministry of reconciliation. That means that you and I can go around this world as an ambassador of Jesus and people that are at war with him. By the way, everyone who's not a follower of Jesus is at war. You were at war with God, so was I at one point in my life. But to go and say, I want you to know what God's peace really is. And it begins with you being made right with him, to have peace with God. And so you introduce people to him. You tell people how they can be made right with God, proclaiming Jesus where true peace is found, that peace with God, the peace of God. And by the way, that's what produces peace with our fellow human beings in this world. When someone becomes a follower of Jesus, well, that changes everything in how they respond to other people, even if they have a beef with them, because they too become humble. They too become recognizing that they're spiritually poor. It's a lot easier to become peaceful with people in that kind of situation. And he says, you'll be called the children of God. We'll be like our father who broke down all the walls of hostility that were erected because of sin, and he broke them down so that he could make peace with us in this world. Now, the next beatitude, the last one, verse 10, when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This really is the, the, the result of the first seven beatitudes emerging in our lives. How's the world going to react? The message reads it like this. You are blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. We're going to, we need to talk about that. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Those who are at war with him may have a negative reaction to you. Jesus said in John 15, hey, don't be shocked if people mistreat you and say naughty things about you and bad things about you. That's how they treated me. Would we agree that the greatest human being to ever live in this world is Jesus? How many of you guys would like to have an employee that exuded the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the eight, um, you know, Beatitudes? 
Wouldn't that be great? Walk into work tomorrow and go, guys, listen, I know I've been giving you a lot of things I want you to do. Work on these, eight, and then come back tomorrow. They'd never steal from you. They would always be humble around you. Uh, how many of you guys are like a boss like that? If you're on staff at RVC, not, this is not the time to say that. <laughs> I mean, you had a boss like that. It's like, Lord, just help them to be meek and help them to be a peacemaker. You know what I mean? I want a neighbor like this. I want friends like this. I would want our world like this. But guess what? Jesus was this. And they nailed him to a cross. So why should we be surprised if your living for God invokes irritation in other people? Jesus says when you face it, not if you face it. Paul told Timothy, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, blessed, blessed twice in this section of scripture. Happy, happy are you. People will take advantage of you because of your righteousness. They'll resent you. You'll make people feel uncomfortable around you. You'll be mocked. You'll be slandered. You'll be misunderstood. This world that rejected Jesus, it will reject you at some level. Your faith will upset some. Some of you came out of a wild party lifestyle, and your friends don't understand it, right? Peter talks about this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. I became a Christian my senior year of high school. You would have thought I killed all my friends' puppies. What? You're a Christian now? Are you going to get a fish on your car? Already done. I already did it, right? Because I wanted to make sure I got to heaven. So I had to put a sticker on my car, right? <laughs> and so, uh, well, we don't have time for this, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> I had a guy do an intervention with me because he found out I wasn't going to smoke pot anymore. And the intervention was he came to my house to convince me that it's our senior year. What do you mean you're going to stop smoking pot this year? Like, do it next year. Don't ruin my life and everybody else's life. I'm like, listen, you stoner, get off of my lawn, right? Go somewhere else. That's comical, isn't it? They did it. He showed up here one Sunday, too. It was really funny. I had this, like, moment. I'm like, you remember? Anyways. <laughs> Why does that happen? Because your deeds, you're living for Jesus. You know, by, by the way, to the degree that you live out the first seven Beatitudes, is the degree that you'll suffer in this eighth one. Your living for Jesus, it will invoke a little bit of persecution. It should. If everyone speaks fondly of you, if everyone loves you, it could be that you haven't offended anybody. As somebody is kind of a dumb statement, but I'll say it anyways. If being a Christian was illegal today, would there be enough evidence to put you behind bars? Is there enough in your life? I don't mean the stickers on a car, the RVC hats, which, by the way, are on sale today for $18, or whatever else you have, whatever else you got going in your life, all the externals. I'm talking about the heart, at the heart level, how you live your life. That will offend some people. And he says it's for righteousness' sake, for righteousness' sake, and for Jesus' sake, the name of Jesus. Many Christians suffer not because of Jesus, 
but just because they're weird. They're obnoxious. They're rude. Sometimes we post things on social media. Let's keep Christ in Christmas. Innocent enough? And then somebody just says, hey, keep it to yourself. Oh, I'm going to get rewards in heaven. That's what Jesus said. I don't know about that one. Might have to go a little farther than somebody saying dislike, mad face on your Facebook. It's not because you're rude or offensive. It's because the gospel is offensive. There's a lot of Christians who are just offensive in this world. They come across like so not like Jesus. The more you and I study this book, by the way, the more it, it would cause you and I to stoop in this world. Not buck up in pride and say, oh, I got more ammo tomorrow when I go to work. And somebody talks about their weekend and go, yeah, I've got a verse about that. And you start just blasting them, machine gun verses at them. Persecution because of Jesus. He said three ways it would happen. They'll mock you, revile you, they'll persecute you, and they'll slander you. And in verse 12, he speaks directly, or verse 11 directly to them. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute and speak evil against you. Because every one of these disciples is going to face persecution in a matter of years. Every one of these guys went to their own death proclaiming the gospel. Christians suffered immensely and still do in our world. You can go and search uh, on, on, online the, uh, the persecuted church and you can read about what your brothers and sisters of Christ are doing this morning. They got no donut holes. They got no sprinkles on their donuts. They're, they're trying to find underground places to worship their God and study his word while their pastors are being taken to prison for preaching the gospel. Some are losing their lives. We'll get mocked. You'll be the butt of somebody's joke because you're a follower of Jesus. Big deal. You might be persecuted. In some countries, it's illegal to be a Christian. Some are martyred. Some are jailed. Some lose their businesses. That may happen in our, our day and age, in the near future. You might lose your job because you're a follower of Jesus. You might lose a promotion because you're a follower of Jesus. You might lose relationships over the fact that you put Jesus first in your life. You'll suffer. People will slander you. They might tell lies about you that are untrue. As they said, awful things in the early days of the church about those who were followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, rejoice when that happens. And he points them towards eternity. By the way, something that you and I should all have in our mind's eye. God, one day I'll spend eternity with you and all these things will be taken care of and the rewards of being faithful to you. In Acts chapter 5, they were beaten because of preaching the gospel and they left rejoicing that they could suffer for the name of Jesus. Can you imagine have that, that upside down view of life and go, man, I just rejoice that somebody isn't happy with me because of my faith in Jesus Christ, not because I'm obnoxious. Verse 12, he says, it's a reminder that you belong to Jesus and that he's going to reward you when you step into eternity as a citizen of his kingdom. It strengthens your faith, by the way, as it gets tested because you say things like, God, do I really believe this? Nobody said living for Jesus would be easy. 
As we read through the Sermon on the Mount, certainly it's not easy. The Sermon on the Mount, it drives us to Christ, by the way. God, I need you and I need your grace. I need your mercy. Something we'll celebrate this morning as we take, partake of this communion meal together this morning as a congregation. But the Sermon on the Mount drives us to Christ, but it also directs us in Christ. This is what life is like in my kingdom. And the first 12 verses, he opens up saying, this is the declaration of my kingdom. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to have a happy life as a citizen of God's kingdom. We read last week, the Bible says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Happy is the person, in another verse, whose sins are forgiven. And happy are the people that allow these characteristic traits to emerge from their lives as the Holy Spirit takes over our hearts and lives and begins to live them out in us. A happy citizen. Let, let me encourage you. You know how that's going to happen in your life and my life? By making knowing Jesus your high priority. I don't know what you got going on this last week, but I don't know if you look back and you say, you know what? I kept putting off the most important things for the things that just cried out for urgency. You move forward this week, you say, God, knowing you is my priority. I'm going to spend time in your word. I'm going to spend some some quiet time in prayer that I might seek you and know you where Jesus, you're my king and living for you is my high priority. If you got off track, man, confess it today. Say, God, I, I want to get on track with you. I want to be moving in that life where my heart is united to fear you, to serve you. You might have a next step this morning. Jesse's going to come out and he's going to lead us in this time of worship as we celebrate communion. But in your bulletin, there's a lot of next steps that you can take. One might be that you're going to demonstrate mercy to somebody. That might mean you have a conversation with someone saying, I got to let this go. I want you to know I forgive you. It might mean that you go and ask for forgiveness for some way you've wronged somebody in your life. But you say, you know what? I'm going to make a commitment to making that happen in my life. I'm going to put some steps in place that show that I'm actually moving in that direction of living out this Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it might be that you want to serve with your time, and so you say, I'm going to join a serve team. Or maybe today's the day you say, man, today I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. I want to be a citizen of the kingdom. And you let us know on that connection card, you say, today I want to give my life to Jesus and be a follower of his. You know, this morning as we celebrate communion, we remember the mercy and love that God has for us at this table. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Jesus said this as he celebrated the, the, the Passover with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, the day before he went to the cross. Jesus says with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He lets us know that salvation is because of the work he does on the cross as his body was broken on that cross, as his blood was poured out for our sins to be forgiven. But he lets us know that one day we're going to have a feast in heaven. And this is symbolic of that day. We're pointing to that day that as a citizen, this side of heaven of his kingdom, one day it'll be in his kingdom with them in this massive feast celebrating what God has done as the, as, the, as the groom, Jesus, and the bride of Christ, the church, are united for all eternity 
and we celebrate with him this, this communion meal. This morning as we get ready to partake of it, I'd ask you today, do you have that kind of assurance that you are in his kingdom? Have you committed your life to him yet? Do you know that you need a savior and that you cannot save yourself? And are you ready to, to ask him to come into your life and to forgive you? You know, many in this room have made that decision before, but before we partake, I want to give you an opportunity to yield your heart to the Lord, to give your life to Jesus. And then you can come as a citizen of the kingdom and partake of this meal that points to the cross where Jesus hung and bled for us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love, God. And we want to say thank you for giving us this incredible sermon that we study together over the next several weeks, Lord, as we look at what it means to be a, a citizen of your kingdom. Father, I'm thankful today that, Lord, all of these characteristic traits of citizens of your kingdom, they're possible with the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. And so, Lord, I, with my brothers and sisters today, I cry out to you and say, God, do that work in my heart. Direct me in the life that you want me to live, God, and give me power to live it out. I'm also mindful there might be one friend here today who doesn't know you. Lord, as they sit here today, they're uncertain about where their eternity is going to be. Lord, they're not sure that they're saved today. Maybe they think that their good deeds will be enough to get to heaven. Your, your, your word tells us that there is no one righteous, no, not one. None of us could ever earn our way or earn your favor or your love. It's by grace. And so, God, today there might be one that wants to call upon grace today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you this morning, today you want to surrender your life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And right where you're sitting today, we could talk to God together. I will lead you in prayer. You could pray something like I pray in your heart. You want Jesus in your life today. You want your sins forgiven. You want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're saved and that one day when you die, you will spend eternity with God in heaven because of what he's done for you on the cross and your decision to be a follower of his today. And real quickly, if that's you this morning, I want you to lift your hand up high and hold it in place to be say, Gordon, would you pray for me? Today I want to ask Jesus to be in my life. I want my sins forgiven. I want to begin a relationship with him today. Would you, would you raise your hand today? If that's you this morning, you want Jesus in your life? You want your sins forgiven? Anybody here this morning? Never want to leave a service off without giving somebody a chance to surrender their heart to the Lord. Anybody here today, you want Jesus in your life. You want your sins forgiven. You want to begin a relationship with him today. You lift your hand and let's pray together. Anybody here this morning? Well, Lord, we do say thank you for grace. Lord, we say thank you for this meal that we're about to partake of. And God, we remember today with joy in our hearts that you willingly suffered because you love us. Lord, you redeemed us. And God, we celebrate the work that you've done on the cross, God, this morning today as we worship through communion and singing today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Listen, let's, let's all stand this morning. You know, as we stand and as, as I invite you to come forward, I got some friends that are going to be on both sides of the room today. Maybe you've got some things going on this morning that can't wait for that prayer night. And go over there. What a privilege it is that we get to pray together as a church family. No matter what it is, just go over there and they'll, and they'll pray with you. And then as, you, as we worship through singing, you can come and partake of, of communion this morning. Let's worship.